Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And welcome to Invested, the podcast that's teaching us all about how the best investors in the world, and I mean by that, the people who have been investing for many, many years with very high rates of return, how these people are doing it. Long-term yeah. investors that make great, 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 huge returns. Returns that are so high that the SEC, that the academic world um, just simply don't believe that these returns are even true. They know they're true. It's not that they're not true. They're true. <laughs> it's just they can't believe that they're really doing it year after year after year. Because in the view of modern portfolio theory, which is how your money is invested, it is impossible to beat the market. And yet these investors led by Warren Buffett, um, even before Buffett, Ben Graham, who taught Buffett, and investors that we like to call rulers for rule one style investing, focus aggressively on not losing money. And by picking companies that are very underpriced, they're able to make returns well in excess of 20, 25% per year, year after year after year for decades, when this is thought to be impossible by the, by the rest of the market. And so we're really exploring in the podcast how that's done. And my daughter, Danielle, is here trying yes. to decide if she can make it work for herself, which is all what this is all about. Yes. Uh, excellent, long introduction. Dan. Thank you. So what we've been talking about, as you know, are the basics of rule number one investing or the basics of value investing from Charlie Munger. And Charlie has given us in a BBC interview that he did uh, four principles of investing. And we've been talking about them in great detail over the last, I don't even know how many weeks. We, have, we weeks. haven't played it for a while. You want to play it? Yeah, we haven't played Charlie in a while. I mean, if you're not ready to queue up on it, don't worry about it. Let's just say what they are. So let's see if you got it. I mean, the thing is, Dad, we've memorized them to the point where Na nausea. Charlie, yeah. yes. <laughs> Maybe we we actually have some of you who are writing us emails saying, please quit repeating yourself. Now, what they may not realize, and by the way, this, this tendency for people to just say, stop repeating yourself when it's not something new and shiny. Um, they remind me of, of a guy that coached basketball for the UCLA Bruins for many years and won one national championship after another. And he would get these really great players that would come in from high school and he would force them to take the same short shot over and over and over again and drive these guys crazy. But he wanted so them to be able to practice. Yeah, it's called repetitive. So is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. And it, and it, but no, what it's called is fundamentals. Yeah. And, the, and, and what you're going to do when you find out if you start investing on your own is that you're going to get yourself into situations if you don't stick to the fundamentals, if you don't have them embedded in your soul then you're going to find yourself wobbling outside these fundamentals. And when you do, you will destroy your rate of return. And that is the critical thing we can teach you about this, is that these four things that Charlie is talking about are, I mean, honestly, we keep repeating them for a year and a half now, and they're not boring me at all. Well, so. there's a reason we're doing it, and it's because I want to. And that's all the reason we need, frankly. I'm trying to figure this stuff out. And uh, learning those basics from Charlie was a huge game changer to me. Yep. And I also realized that there's a lot more to know about them. And that's why I wanted to do this Back to Basics series. And I think 
it's been really helpful for me to go back and continue to talk about each of the four principles. You know, I want to add something here that Guy Spear told us when we were sitting in his office, but which we didn't record. And with guys, with guys, I'm sure Guy would give us permission to talk about this off off the tape. But what he said when I when when we talked about these four principles of Charlie, he said, "Well, here's the thing." He said, "You know, when you're a guy like Charlie Munger and you get asked by the press every time you meet them for 50 years to explain your principles of investing, you sort of tend to whittle it down." Yeah. To maybe, I think Guy was implying it's whittled down more than it's really educational. Right. Well, we were commenting that it's so, I mean, I think I said it's so beautiful that Charlie has like just distilled his system into these four great principles. And yet we've been talking about them for such a long time and trying right. to really figure out what's behind them. And, and we've discovered that there's a lot behind them. And yet he says at the end of his little soliloquy on it that the the principles are so simple if they taught it in school what would they have to do for the rest of the semester so he also kind of makes fun of people who are <laughs> trying to figure it out the way we are yeah. which fair enough we're not as smart as charlie munger yeah. um but a guy was saying you know essentially he'd probably whittled it down a bit into somewhat of a soundbite to give reporters who ask him that annoyingly yeah. stupid question probably and that's his answer and it works you know because it's true but it's also simplified yes yes and I, I think that's really important for all of our listeners to, to realize is that you know if you're struggling to absorb these basic four principles because they are so deep each one of them is its own minefield um, and then and you think wow it just I thought it was going to be simple and easy and it turns out it's simple but it's not easy I think is right. It, it's these four principles are really very simple. You don't invest unless you are capable of understanding the business, and then you come to understand it. That it has a moat. It has this big, protective, intrinsic characteristic that gives it protection against competition. Then it's got management with integrity and talent, and finally, you can buy it cheaper than it, on the, the price it's worth. Right? You have to buy it for a, what Charlie calls a fair price, which we've come to understand is really the price that that business would sell for as a private company. That would be a yeah. fair price, which is about half of what a public company sells for. So those are the critical things. And we're wandering on to this, the third one, which is management, uh, which we started talking about last time. And I, I think um, we should dive into this because I'm afraid we're going to get cut off by a huge lightning storm that's coming in here to Georgia right now. So, honey, could we just blast on in? Yeah, but let me say quickly, Happy okay. New Year to everybody. Oh, happy New it's Year. 2017. And we are thrilled for 2017 on the podcast. And we've got exciting things happening this year with rule number one stuff and invested. And uh, and we're, we're excited. So Happy New Year to everybody and good riddance to 2016. Yeah, there we go. We're moving on. So Okay, so we're management. on management. Dad. Yeah, we're on management. So And what we did last time was talk about for two episodes, we talked about the numbers to look at to identify bad CEOs, not just numbers, but also writings that they do and letters they put out and just how to identify them. And we wanted to give a counterpoint to that of how do you find good CEOs? Right. So we should talk about a couple of role models for good CEOs so you can go and look up the, the things that they write about and start to get a sense of what a good, conscious 
CEO in the rule one style, uh, uh, what we mean by a rule one style CEO. Um, and I think, let me just say, I think this is really important because as somebody learning this stuff and trying to teach myself this stuff, you read a lot of letters from a lot of CEOs and they all tend to sound somewhat the same. And then you go read some stuff from a couple others who you're going to mention and seeing that difference is what clued me into what to look for. And I think, I think the contrast is really educational. Yeah, I, 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 I trust that uh, when, we, when we give you some examples here, you will agree that the contrast from last week is really, really severe and, and obvious. And so um, let's, let's dive in. The, the, we're just going to talk about two of them right now um, that are just, to my view, role models for a CEO. And one of them um, is somebody that you may not even think of as a CEO, who we've been modeling our investments after, our investing strategies after, is, is happens to be Warren Buffett, who is- What? No, yeah. that doesn't count. Yeah, yeah, it totally counts because I want you to You're see Buffett as a Buffett. CEO. Yeah, okay. I, we've seen him as an investor, but yeah. because perhaps because he's such a great investor um, who looks at these four principles, right? And says, right. these are the things I need to have from a CEO, he, maybe empathizes more with the investors um, in his own company than most CEOs do uh, the investors in their company. And as a result, his communication with his investors in Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company, that's, again, I'll say that slowly so you can jot it down, Berkshire Hathaway, um, if you haven't known about it, is a conglomerate of businesses. It owns about 60 or 70 private businesses and then a bunch of public businesses. And it's run by Warren Buffett, who's the major shareholder. And he writes a letter to investors every year. Um, and this letter has become incredibly famous. And I would say one of the most important things you can do, Danielle, honestly, in terms of getting an investment education, is to read every single letter. You know, it's true. I mean, I was not expecting you to say his name on a list of CEOs, but um, he certainly is the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. You're right. And he writes a letter and he communicates to shareholders just like every other public company CEO. Yeah. And he does his in the way that he wished all CEOs would do their letters, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's like, what what is he looking to do? And so what he's looking to do in a letter, what he's looking to do in communicating with his shareholders is what we expect from our CEOs that we put money with. This is what we expect. Is this what we get? No, <laughs> it's not what we get, but we fight to get it and we keep pushing them to give it to us. And what we're after is the information we need every year to put a value on the business. Hmm. So think about that for a second. Yeah. If the CEO's job is to communicate to you the positive things that are going on, the negative things that are going on in such a way that you can value the business properly every year, then that's a big step different than what most CEOs do. Yeah, I mean, I think what I look for is truthfulness, is honesty, about the bad stuff as well as the good stuff. And every company has bad stuff going on as well as good stuff. They do. And let me just read a brief little 
phrase from Buffett's 2015 letter. And by the way, you can find these just by going to BerkshireHathaway.com um, and they come up right on the front page. You see a little link that says letters and you click that and there are letters that go all the way back every year to 1977. And if you're clever on Google, you can go back even farther into the Buffett partnership years and find letters. He's been writing them every year since, gosh, 1956, I think. So um, here's one from 2015. And it starts off to the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire's gain in net worth during 2015 was 15.4 billion, which increased the per share book value of our stock by 6.4%. Over the last year, that is uh, over the last 51 years, that is since present management took over, per share book value has grown from $19 to $155,501. <laughs> All that right, is, that's okay. We'll, we'll take that. He said that is a rate of 19.2% compounded annually. Now, just as a quick aside, that's why investing in stocks can do more for your financial net worth and more for your great retirement and more for your financial independence than any other category of investment can. Nothing else has that sort of capability, not gold, not land. Well, occasionally you get the right land, but not in general, right? So this is a phenomenally high rate of return. All right, now, um, let me jump forward. He said, we've had- Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that was a good thing that he told us, so let's move on. Yeah, he said, by the early 1990s, our focus changed to the downright, to the outright ownership of businesses, a shift that diminished the relevance of balance sheet figures. That disconnect occurred because the accounting rules that apply to controlled companies are materially different from those used in valuing marketable securities. What that means is stocks that you, you can buy in the public market. The carrying value of the losers we own is written down, but the winners are never revalued upwards. Hmm. Very important, okay? We've had experience with both outcomes. I've made some dumb purchases and the amount I paid for the economic goodwill of those companies was later written off, a move that reduced Berkshire's book value. We've also had some winners, a few of them very big, but have not written those up by a penny. So what he's doing is he's basically telling you about the value of the business and the, on, off of the balance sheet, which goes down for bad events, but does not go up for good ones. In effect, Warren Buffett is saying that our balance sheet is probably worth a lot more than it appears that it is. So, yeah, that's definitely what he's saying, which obviously benefits him. Yep. He says, that. over time, this asymmetrical accounting treatment, with which we agree, necessarily widens the gap between intrinsic value and book value. Intrinsic value is what? That's a question. Intrinsic value. Intrinsic value. Yes. It's the inherent value of the business, of the cash flow it creates. That's very, very good. Another way to say it is it's what it's worth as a business. Oh, that's such a dumb answer. That's not, that's just different words. Well, you said it very elegantly, I absolutely correctly. Oh. But um, <laughs> you can also call it the it's sticker. You call it the sticker price, what we would find as the real value of the business or the intrinsic value of the business. Okay. Um, so he said that this today, the large unrecorded gains in our winners make it clear that Berkshire's intrinsic value far exceeds its books value. 
And that's why we would be delighted to repurchase our shares should they sell, and this is really cool, should they sell as low as 120% of book value. At that level, purchases would instantly and meaningfully increase per share intrinsic value for Berkshire's continuing shareholders. And oh, I see what I see what you're saying regarding intrinsic value equals what it's worth because what you're doing is you're contrasting it to Buffett's book value of Berkshire House. Correct. Right? That's why you're that's why you're using that kind of definition. I take back my I take back my 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 mean comment. It wasn't trivial. So this let's let's put some numbers on this. Berkshire has um, A shares which are like two hundred thousand dollars, and it has B shares which are the same. They're just a smaller slice, and Last year, when the B shares were at $125, um, Buffett, uh, Buffett basically showed that the book value was at about $100. With book value at $100, he said, you know, if these things are at 120% of book value, then we would start buying back our stock. And it was within a few dollars of that at 125 in other words, big, huge neon sign saying, buy my stock right now. So did he? Did yeah. he buy it back? Uh, no, he didn't buy it back. Um, it never quite got there. But it set a kind of a base for where we would buy it. Hmm. Right? So it's really fascinating. Essentially, Buffett is saying that the intrinsic value of this company is massively higher than their book value. So if they were to sell off, let's say Buffett died, and they decided to liquidate Berkshire Hathaway. They would sell it all off in pieces. And if you bought the stock for $125, those pieces would almost surely come out to be worth about 250 bucks. Yeah, I can. I would think more than that, but yeah. Because that's what he's saying, essentially. Because you know Buffett is going to say that the, the retail intrinsic value as a public company is probably 250. Therefore, buying it at 125 would be a bargain. So that's, that's powerful stuff. To have a CEO talk about his stock and tell you when he's interested in buying it, when he's not, based on the value of the business, is so radically different than what most CEOs do. So Warren Buffett talks about the value of the business over and over again in his letters and tries to explain why companies are certainly the way they are. He also tries to explain about how to invest, um, that uh, he explains about his own investing strategy. I would say a huge amount of what I put into the book, Rule Number One, came from these letters and from thinking about what he, was, what he meant in the context of my own investing. So mm. I want to urge yeah. you to read them. I got to say, though, that's all pretty self-congratulatory, as in our business is awesome and is even underpriced. Does he say anything in that letter that's even mildly like, you know, a challenge that they encountered or anything that they did wrong that year? Well, let me look. Um, he talks about basically how you'd calculate intrinsic value in this particular letter. And um, I guess I would put it on you guys to do your homework um, because he repeatedly discusses his mistakes. When he's made a mistake, yeah. he digs into it. That's I, that's what I mean. I know I've read other ones where he has done that. I don't know if it happened in 2015. Yep. So he he didn't. I don't know that. I can't remember immediately if he if he was doing something in 2015. I'm kind of scrolling through it here while we're talking. Um, yeah. Well, the point is, in other letters, he's certainly done that, yep. and I think I think that's a huge marker as well. But it's interesting what you said about looking for how a CEO discusses their own valuation and whether or not. 
that CEO thinks that the valuation and the stock price are where they should be and what they're expecting to have happen to it. Yeah, and the opposite is also true that that when they're talking about stock price and saying, look, it's just really too expensive right now, you shouldn't be buying the stock. Um, that's pretty that's pretty rare. You'll see that in a public company, right? I mean, that's just yeah, that's just unbelievable. Like there's just I mean, that's bad for business, <laughs> literally. You know, it's bad for business on the short term. And unfortunately, that's the way most CEOs think. But it's not bad for business in the long term for a company. No, for a company to just say, look, you know, we're going to tell you the truth about our company. We have integrity. We're not trying to hide anything. We're not trying to hype up the value of the business so that you're buying in at a bad time here. Um, in fact, there's about there's there's a few things here that I think are important to emphasize about what Buffett looks for in a CEO that I want to I want that come out of these letters. So let me run through them real quick because we're, we're, I'm worried about this storm right here. So the we're first fighting one, the weather. We're fighting the weather. The first one is that um, the, you've got to have a focus on the customer. That's that's the attention of the company and the attention of the management team and the attention of the CEO. It shouldn't be about you know what we're doing for the increase in your stock price. That would be the, the polar opposite of the values of a good CEO. Second, there should be no cutting corners in the company. You shouldn't see a company that's delivering a cheaper product um, than it's advertising that it's delivering, right? You should get quality. You should get more than you expect to get. Third, that intellectual honesty from the CEO about what's really going on out there should absolutely come even if it's at the expense of sales and profit. You've got to have truth first. You have to have integrity first. And number four is building the culture of the company that support these values is something that is part of the CEO's job. His job is allocation of capital and the building of a culture that supports integrity all the way through the culture. Companies like I was I was thinking of Nordstrom was run by a CEO that had such integrity that Nordstrom offered a full money back guarantee, even if you didn't have the receipt for anything that was brought back. And the Wall Street Journal had an article years and years ago that someone brought back a tire. Yeah, I remember that. And said that they bought it at Nordstrom's. Nordstrom's doesn't sell tires. It's clothing and shoes. And yet they paid the guy what he said it costs and sent him on his way, right? And they just used that to build the culture of their company, which I thought was brilliant. I think since then, there's been a little bit of a change in culture at Nordstrom's, perhaps. So building the culture of the company and allocating capital are two critical things that a CEO does, and they do them with integrity, then you start to be a rule one CEO, a rule one CEO. I gotta tell you, the people that were running Horsehead Holdings exhibited a complete lack of integrity. They had all sorts of things going on in that company that the owners should have known about, which they did not disclose to the owners until it was too late. So you can really, you really want to choose CEOs that have integrity. It's very difficult to do, but one of the things you can do is you can see, is what they say is happening, happening, does, is that what happens in the future? And the way you do that is to go back years ago and start reading the annual report. The annual report is, is, is called a 10K, and it's all written up about what's going on and where they think they're going. And then read the next years and see if that sort of prognosis for the future of the company was, was happening or did something else happen entirely. 
Um, yeah. I can remember in, in a one of the big companies like Caterpillar, it was Caterpillar, where the CEO back around 2000 was talking about how, you know, here's their five-year plan. And uh, maybe it was 2004 or something. Anyway, by the year three he or year four, he was no longer talking about the five-year plan. He just stopped talking about it entirely? Just Not a no, word. No more mention of No it. more mention. <laughs> and immediately I thought, I don't want to invest with that guy. I mean, yeah. I don't know if he lacks integrity, but what I do know is that this lacks integrity, this failure to discuss the old plan, right? Right, right. So yeah. I got I got to give props to uh, to a, a CEO at IBM named Jenny Rometty. Um was one of the most powerful female CEOs and she was very bold uh, in disclosing that her company was simply not able to achieve the 5-year goals set by her predecessor. Hmm. Uh, let me tell you oh, that is hard to do. That's even more interesting. That's even more interesting because it's not um something that she laid out. It wasn't a goal or a process that she had planned. It was something by somebody done before she ever was even there. Or maybe, I don't know, did she come from down the ranks? or? Yeah, she, she from came from, from the, yeah, the sales group. Okay, well, then, then maybe she was part of it. But to acknowledge the choices of a predecessor and that you're not going to meet them, that's strong. That's strong. And, um, and she did that, and the stock dropped like a brick. And so here you have integrity ahead of the stock price. And, you know, you just really, really are we're desperately searching for those kind of CEOs. Now, in, in, in wrapping this up, I want to give you the second CEO who I've talked about many times here, that is who is Doug Mackey over at Whole Foods, um, who has also written volumes about what it means to be the CEO of a business and to run a business in a rule yeah. one style right, yeah. with integrity. And, oh, my gosh, you should just go pick up John's book. Conscious Capitalism and read it. It's an earth-shaking uh, book that says that pretty much most of the way capitalism is being conducted by big companies today is uh, lacks integrity and that they're failing on a number of different points. And John lays it out that, that a company should have its stakeholders in mind, not just its shareholders, not just its employees, and most particularly not just its CEO. And that it's it's really an effort that that requires a great deal of moral fortitude and a high level of integrity to properly do capitalism. Right? Well, and that most importantly, his biggest point is that doing that is actually good for the bottom line of the company. It's actually good for the revenue of the company. It's not a do-goodery, let's like, you know, have a nonprofit here on the side kind of thing. It's saying this for-profit company can accomplish good in the world and that doing so will benefit our shareholders. Yeah, well said. And I'm, rather than list the companies that John talks about in his book, I'm just going to encourage all you guys go out and get this book. You'll become a much better person for it. Trust me, it's, a, it's that kind of a book. And um, you will read about a number of companies as examples of very conscious CEOs who are using their company as a way to make the world a better place for everybody connected with that company. So I encourage you guys to read that. Um, dig into everything John Mackey's written. Dig into everything Warren Buffett's written. And you will find yourself with a profile um, that you sort of create in your head by looking at these examples of what a CEO should be like. And then be very reluctant to invest in CEOs that are not like that, that are more mercenary in the way they're approaching the world. Certainly not to say they can't do a, a successful job of making you money, but beware that the difference between a private company and a public company 
with the wrong CEO is that the public company CEO can wipe out the shareholders and still come out of it better than they went in. And we've seen that with Horsehead. So you want to be very leery. The incentives can be misaligned. The incentives are misaligned for sure. All right. So I'm done. We beat the storm. Let me repeat these four that you said. I think we ran through them pretty quickly. One was focus on customer. Two was no cutting corners. Three is intellectual honesty of the CEO. And four was building a culture of integrity at the company. And what I found interesting about this list of four that you made is that a couple of them are very hard. So the ones regarding culture, I think, are easier to decipher. That's easier to tell, um, to form an opinion on whether or not a CEO is doing that or not. It's the other ones like cutting corners and focusing on the customer that are a little harder to see if they're doing. I would, I, say, like, I would say look at, at cutting corners as uh, whether this company is really taking a long-term view. In other well, words, I think we can use the numbers that you said that you used in the last two episodes where we talked about bad CEOs and numbers to look at to see if they're essentially hurting the company, doing a bad job. And therefore, the corollary would also be true if those numbers are good then the CEO might be doing a good job and might not be cutting corners. Would you say that's true? I would say it's true, but I would also say ironically that the process of cutting corners can produce good numbers in the short term. That's the whole point of cutting corners is to produce good numbers. But the whole point of those numbers that you gave us were that they were difficult to manipulate by a CEO. Correct. That's why we want to look at all four of these, these growth numbers and the uh, critical management numbers that we talked about, return on equity, return on invested capital. So if the CEO is doing something for the long term, return on equity and return on invested capital can go down and debt can go up. And it could be their totally right moral decision for the company. They could have a year or two where it goes down. Um, The numbers that are more very difficult to manipulate are the four growth rates. So you have earnings, uh, uh, sales, equity, and cash. And if all of those are continuing in a good direction, um, even though you're seeing some drop in return on equity or return on invested capital, maybe they've added a little debt. But the the big four moving in the right direction, um, particularly on a three-year view, then I think we're probably still in good shape. When you when you're when you're judging a company based on a one-year view and you're giving it a thumbs down, we're basically falling into the trap that forces these CEOs to have good one-year numbers. Right, we're, we're we're giving them the same pressure by selling yeah. off the company. Yeah. yeah. So this is why being capable of understanding the business and what's going on with it is so critical. Always as a starting point, you have to understand what this CEO is trying to do, uh, so that you can understand the short-term numbers when they drop. Okay. Thanks. And I'm hearing huge thunder rolling in. We got to run before this blows up. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to our first podcast of 2017. Happy New Year, Dad. Happy New Year. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. Time to go play. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do is enter the special podcast code 
stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, stockpile into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.